Well, uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, just three verses that I think are packed with really important, powerful meaning for us um, as Christians. We Christians are capable of looking pretty good on the outside. That's something that I think we talk about and other people talk about as, oh, Christians, you know, they're great at putting on a good front. It is true to some degree. We're, we're pretty good at looking good on the outside. By God's grace, we responded to the gospel with repentance and faith. Again, and by God's grace, we're saved by His grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. And we know we were rescued from hell, from God's righteous wrath against our sin. We're thankful each day that our hope is in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as it says in 1 Peter 1. Though we struggle with temptations that confront us daily, we know our lives are hidden with Christ in God, as it tells us in Colossians. But despite knowing that our eternal destiny is secure because of the cross and what Christ did for us, it's easy to go through life sometimes kind of biding our time. And we can tend to tune out much of the ungodly thinking and behavior around us in the world and sometimes forget that we are called not to tolerate sin while we're just passing through this life, just waiting for Christ to return, but we're called to actively fight sin in our lives and in the church. And much of this involves an internal battle, an, an invisible war. We have a very real enemy who's constantly seeking to derail and destroy us. He hates God. He knows he is already defeated, and he wants to do the maximum damage possible to Christians and the church in the short time he has left. Peter likens Satan to a roaring lion that seeks to devour us. Jesus called Satan a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. That's from John 8, 44. Thankfully, James reminds us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. The Apostle Paul often wrote of our need to walk by faith, not by sight. Look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's 2 Corinthians 4.18. We're to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul understood that fighting and winning the vital battles we face as Christians requires keeping our focus, our spiritual eyes, on matters of the spiritual realm, which requires thorough knowledge of God's Word and absolute reliance on the power of His Spirit. Paul often used warfare analogies and terminology to describe the importance of fighting these invisible battles we face as Christians. He tells us in Ephesians 6, 12, which was read earlier in the service, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the war we are engaged in is an invisible one. And victory requires absolute trust in the overcoming power of our risen Savior and the consistent use of the spiritual weapons He's given us. Those uh, are, as listed by Paul in Ephesians 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, 
the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul responds to some people who had criticized the way he conducted himself during a previous visit to instruct them, to teach them about the gospel. They had accused him of being timid and unimpressive in their presence. He did not wow them when he was there teaching in their presence. They were perhaps looking for Billy Graham, and instead they sized Paul up as more like Mr. Rogers, just kind of milk toast, not impressive. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul chastises them, these Corinthians, for thinking that we will win spiritual battles with human charm or eloquence or persuasiveness. As he told the Corinthian church in his first letter, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's, that's a pretty startling statement. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds the church that God's grace is sufficient to accomplish His work in and through us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So now I'd like to read this passage where Paul tells us we're fighting an invisible spiritual war. This is 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is God's Word. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Trojan horse legend. I think most of us learned that in school at some point. Just a quick recap, the ancient city of Troy was located on the coast of Turkey, across the Aegean Sea from the the Greek city-state of Sparta. When the king of Sparta heard that his wife Helen had been kidnapped by a prince of Troy, he called on the other city-states of Greece to help bring her home. In response, a thousand Greek ships set sail for Troy. You would think that, that's, that's a lot of ships. You'd think that this massive Greek armada would be able to overtake Troy and rescue Helen. However, Troy was protected by a 20-foot high wall surrounding the entire city. So this giant wall provided the Trojans with safety. When they were attacked by the Spartans, they would have their archers up on the tops of the wall, just raining arrows down on their enemies, and every time they drove them away. Couldn't get into the city. So the Greek army tried to breach the wall of Troy for nearly 10 years with no success. All seemed hopeless until Odysseus, the famous Greek general, devised a clever plan. It's customary at the time for a vanquished foe to leave a peace offering behind if they had lost the war or lost this battle, They leave a peace offering behind to gracefully accept defeat. So Odysseus suggested building a huge, beautiful wooden gift horse and leaving it outside the gates of Troy. The entire Greek army would then pretend to leave but stay nearby. 
So the giant horse, which was hollow, was occupied by 30 Greek soldiers. The Trojans, believing the Greek army had actually left, dragged the heavy horse inside the city gates, claiming this great victory and celebrating long into the night. So while the city of Troy slept, the soldiers climbed out of the horse and opened the city gates. And the Greek army had made their way back close by, and the entire Greek army swarmed into the city of Troy and e easily captured the city. So what does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5? In the passage, Paul talks about waging war in a different manner than the world and with weapons which are not of this world. So similar to the Greeks, we're told we must use different, and in our case, otherworldly, divine weapons to successfully wage spiritual war. And Paul describes the importance of addressing every thought in a godly manner. Because, like the Trojan horse, a single sinful thought, if left unopposed, can open the door to spiritual and even physical destruction in our lives. So there's, there's, a, there's an analogy here. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul reveals four important truths that we need to understand and remember daily. So these are the four truths. One, we are fighting a spiritual war. Sounds pretty straightforward, but important. Two, we are given supernatural weapons. Three, we shatter arguments with truth. And four, we seize each thought to obey Christ. Purposely choosing language drawn from siege warfare, Paul describes a battle with eternal consequences, which we are incapable of winning in our strength but one we are guaranteed to win if we fight with God's supernatural weapons and His strength. Paul's use of intense warfare imagery also gets our attention and encourages us to take this battle very seriously. He's helping us understand this is, this is critical. One historical example of not taking warfare seriously and having it backfire badly was the first major battle of the Civil War. It was called the First Battle of Bull Run. It was July 21st, 1861. It became known as the Picnic Battle because spectators, including a number of U.S. congressmen, showed up with sandwiches and binoculars and, and chairs, expecting a decisive victory for the Union Army. And they felt like this would lead to a quick end to the war. Instead, the battle led to a terrible defeat of the Union Army and the picnickers literally fled for their lives. So this is an example of not taking warfare seriously. Despite his use of war vocabulary, though, Paul is definitely not talking about winning spiritual battles with some kind of brute strength. And, and some of us, probably men more than women in general, love a good war movie, right? Or a, a good triumphs over evil superhero movie. Or is it just me? I mean, you know, we love these movies where the good guys win, and there's like this, this final victorious battle where good triumphs over evil. Paul isn't describing a tip, typical human fighting involving physical domination or even outmaneuvering an enemy. The warfare of 2 Corinthians involves acknowledging our inability and our weakness to overcome sin, but appropriating the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is 
Paul from Ephesians 1. This is the kind of power Paul's talking about, God's power at work in us, not our own strength or cleverness. So beginning with verse 3, we see, and this is point one, we are fighting a spiritual war. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We are fighting a spiritual war. Paul begins by noting that we are flesh and blood, fallen human beings, and himself included. He says, we, we walk through this life in the flesh, meaning that though Christians are justified and forgiven by Christ, we occupy earthly bodies that are corrupted by sin until we're transformed and receive glorified bodies from the Lord when he returns. But Paul wastes no time following that admission that we walk in the flesh with the assertion that he and we do not fight spiritual battles with carnal weapons. Paul, the word Paul uses for waging war actually depicts it like, something like an active duty soldier going into battle. But this soldier is not fighting according to the flesh. The word here for flesh is sarks, which can refer simply to our human body, but it can also refer to the natural attainments of men. Natural attainments of men. In other words, we can't achieve victory in a spiritual battle with our human achievements, our cleverness, or our skills. We cannot achieve victory in a spiritual battle with our human achievements, cleverness, or skills. This understanding fits perfectly with Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians of what some have called the power in weakness paradox. Paul talks about in chapter 4, we are jars of clay who are outwardly wasting away while being inwardly renewed by Christ daily. He says that... um, it, it is, we are jars of clay through whom God's power is perfected in our utter weakness, he says in chapter 12. He, Paul is deliberately using warfare metaphors throughout the passage to alert us to the seriousness of the battle, but he's also making it crystal clear that our battles must be fought with spiritual, not human weapons. Well, next Paul states in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. This is point two, we are given supernatural weapons. Point two, we are given supernatural weapons with which to fight this war. Paul again asserts that the weapons we are given for fighting spiritual battles are not fleshly, they're not human weapons, but they have divine power for destroying strongholds. So the word theos, In that phrase, divine power, the word theos, translated divine, indicates this power is from God. And the second word, dunatos, which is translated power, describes the the nature of the spiritual weapons and, and, and just the extent of them available to believers. They're powerful, they're mighty, they're strong, and they're able to destroy or tear down spiritual strongholds. And we know these weapons are backed by the full power of our omnipotent God because the same word Paul chose here, interestingly, the same word Paul chose, dunatos, for power, is also used as a name for God in Luke 1.49. It's translated in, in that passage, he who is mighty. 
This is part of Mary's song of praise. It's known as the Magnificat in Luke 1. So the very power of God is behind these spiritual weapons that he gives us to fight these spiritual battles. To help us see how critical it is to fight our spiritual battles with God's weapons and not worldly weapons, one pastor contrasted the spiritual weapons or the armor of God, Paul talks about, with what he sees this pastor believes would be their worldly or carnal counterparts. So let's just quickly look at them. We have the belt of truth. So this is where we're speaking truth, speaking God's truth, which is the truth, and, ha- and, and displaying honest character and integrity versus in the world, the, the counterpart would be hypocrisy or deceit or lying. We have the breastplate of righteousness, which is our holy conduct, living according to God's word, versus unrighteous conduct or sin reigning in our lives. We're given the weapon of the shoes of the gospel of peace. This is the readiness to share the gospel with others versus being selfish, distracted, unprepared to share the reason for your hope in Christ. We have the shield of faith. We're trusting in God's word and in his power to protect and guide us versus doubting God's goodness and power, being double-minded, as James talks about. James talks about. God gives us the helmet of salvation, the hope and assurance of salvation in Christ versus hopelessness or trusting in our own works to save us. And then finally, God gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which makes the child of God complete and equipped for every good work. This is what 2 Timothy 3.17 tells us. The Word of God makes the child of God complete and equipped for every good work. And this is verses on the world side fighting the father of lies with our limited sinful minds. Not, not going ha- to work. So just from looking at this list, it's evident that we won't win spiritual victories or bring, bring glory to God's name or overcome sin in our lives or lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ if we fight using worldly, fleshly weapons. But what are the strongholds that Paul says we're supposed to destroy? What are those strongholds? One commentator calls them, this is a little long, but it's, it's good, the systems, schemes, structures, and strategies that Satan designs to frustrate and obstruct the progress of Christ's gospel, which are calculated to pervert the true gospel of grace and replace it with another form of teaching which brings the souls of men into bondage. Now, that's long. I'm going to read it one more time because I think it's, it's good. So what are the strongholds? They're the systems, schemes, structures, and strategies that Satan designs to frustrate and obstruct the progress of Christ's gospel, which are calculated to pervert the true gospel of grace and replace it with another form of teaching which brings the souls of men into bondage. One example of such a stronghold in our modern times, I believe, would be the theory of evolution. It truly is a godless system of thought. When I say godless, I mean that literally. There's no concept of God figures into the theory whatsoever. It is a theory designed to explain the origins of life and the earth and everything completely without God. So when taken to its ultimate end, it also produces hopelessness, despair, and death. 
And, and I would say despite over 150 years of searching for solid evidence to support the theory, Darwin's evolution of species has proven to be completely unsubstantiated. Even leading evolutionists such as Stephen Gould and others have admitted that the fossil record and other expected sources of evidence do not bear out Darwin's theory. This theory, a fortress of modern thought, is taught and defended as fact in most educational institutions today, and it leads our depraved minds to think things like this. God can't be as great as the Bible says, since everyone knows he had nothing to do with creation. That was caused by a random explosion billions of years ago. Man evolved over billions of years. We're the product of random, meaningless chance. It's sheer scientific ignorance to believe in an eternal God who created the universe, who rules over it, and who dares to require my repentance, faith, and absolute allegiance in order to know him and be saved? Satan has been constructing strongholds of unbelief throughout human history, all designed to lead people away from God's truth, to encourage our innate rebellion and to leave us eternally separated from God, which is his fate. I've heard the phrase, misery loves company. Yep. God's word enables us to combat the enemy's lies. It is our perfect source of God-breathed, unchanging truth. When Jesus responded to Satan's temptations during his 40 days in the wilderness, he used the same supernatural weapon that God has given us, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's exactly how he responded to Satan and destroyed those strongholds that were based on lies that Satan threw at him and tempted him with, God's word. So this now leads us to verse 5, where Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Point three is we shatter arguments with truth. Real simple. We shatter arguments with truth. So what arguments and lofty opinions is Paul referring to? Most Bible scholars see pride at the root of these arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. In fact, some believe that in part, Paul may have had in mind, in part, the account of the rebellious builders of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11, who said, "'Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens.'" And let us make a name for ourselves. And we know from many passages in God's word that he opposes the proud. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says God. There have been worldly systems of thought that exalt man over God since the Garden of Eden. When the serpent tempted Eve, it's literally the oldest trick in the book, right? You can be like God. You can be like Him. He's withholding from you. In our flesh, we like to think we are smarter, more sophisticated, and even sometimes think that we're more powerful than God. So we are susceptible to ways of thinking that reinforce this narrative. It might seem a little counterintuitive, but our sinful minds can and often will adopt 
distorted, untrue ways of thinking to justify our sinful choices. I think we have this idea that somehow our minds, maybe this comes from the enlightenment, we have this concept that our minds are sort of immune to the effects of sin. They're not. They're definitely not. Our sinful minds can adopt distorted ways of thinking to justify our sinful choices. Listen to how John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, spell this out. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who, who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You notice the order there in which this process is described. For everyone who does wicked things, chooses sin, hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Seriously, apart from having our minds renewed in Christ, we're all attracted to worldly arguments and lofty opinions which will justify our sin. But if we humbly turn to God's Word, seeking to know His truth and to obey, we will see through, destroy, the false, satanic ways of explaining reality that encourage our rebellion against God. In this verse, it's likely Paul is primarily referring to arguments and lofty opinions raised against the gospel, which is powerful to save that he had faithfully preached to the Corinthians. Opposition came against his preaching of the gospel from scribes in the synagogues and Gentile intellectuals such as those that Paul addressed at the Areopagus in Acts 17. Paul always elevated Christ crucified, a message which pulled down prideful Jews to whom Christ was a stumbling block and prideful Gentiles to whom the message of the cross was foolishness. John 14, 6 says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to God the Father. And in John, John 17, 17, Jesus prays for God to sanctify his followers in the truth, saying, your word is truth. The point is that when Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, this can refer to anything that argues or stands against the truth of the gospel revealed in Scripture. Because God's word is absolutely, entirely true, without error. So all worldly systems of thought or theories must be measured against the Bible, God's, God's truth. Well, finally, Paul's statement at the, in the second half of verse 5 is that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. And this is point four. We seize each thought to obey Christ. We seize each thought to obey Christ. So what does Paul mean that we take our thoughts captive? And is this really possible? It sounds kind of difficult, challenging. Sometimes I'm not sure we, we believe we can do that. Paul's main objective, again, may have been refuting thoughts which stand against the truth of the gospel. 
But this verse reveals a vital principle concerning our thought lives. Remember that Paul is using the terminology of warfare to stress the urgency of his instructions here. His words suggest the image in this verse, his words suggest the image of taking prisoners, in this case thoughts, into captivity. And literally, uh, the same wording could be used of taking someone into captivity at the point of a sword or spear. So there's an aggressiveness involved. One preacher says, Paul wants us to picture our thoughts being seized and forced to come into the presence of Jesus, where they will glow brightly if noble and holy, or melt away and vaporize if sinful. Jesus made it clear in his teaching that sinning with our actions is is wrong, but sinful actions always originate in our thoughts or in our hearts. He says in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And the word translated heart here usually involves the concept of our thoughts, not just our feelings. So he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft. So yes, Despite the fact that no one can see your thoughts, the thoughts we allow ourselves to dwell on really do matter a lot. So what thoughts are foremost in our minds, dominating our thinking? Which ones do we entertain that keep us from fixing the eyes of our hearts on Jesus? What thoughts sometimes seem to overtake us and control our minds? Fear, worry, lust, anger, doubt, all of the above? If our thoughts are like Trojan horses that Satan sneaks into our minds, once they are revealed as the enemy, is it too late to fight back? No, definitely not. Primary reason we know it's possible to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ is that God, through the Apostle Paul, says in this passage, We destroy arguments and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He uses, Paul, in this one verse, uses the present tense and the active voice of the verb, meaning this is something we are doing. He doesn't say we might, we should, we can take every thought captive. He says we take every thought captive. Notice here that he also says every thought Clearly, this is not possible in our own human strength. Jesus says in John 15, 5, that apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. But then his word says, tells us in Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So on a personal note, I struggled seriously with doubt in my early 20s. I had, I had asked honest questions about the historicity, the reliability of Christianity, of the Bible, after becoming a Christian as a teenager. But later, I developed this habit of doubting anything about the Bible or Christianity that I couldn't understand to my satisfaction. This went on for a long time. This was a struggle for, for a number of years until God helped me see 
through some circumstances and through some, some uh, involvement of friends in my life, that I was trying to, and really stripped down to the simple, what was at the root of this, I was trying to be my own God by insisting that I understand everything before trusting Him, which really, when you think about it, is ridiculous. It's really, when I finally was able to step back and see what I was doing, I saw how ridiculous it was, how crazy for a creature to insist on understanding all that's involved in trusting the God that created them before trusting Him. It's clearly there's great pride at the root of that, which God convicted me of. It had become such an ingrained habit that once I confessed my sin, I had to begin capturing each sinful thought, which at first was a flood because this had become a habit over a number of years. Many, many thoughts. But I had to have the, make the decision that in, in His strength, in His power, I will begin seizing each thought that tempts me to doubt him when I am not in control or I don't understand some aspect of what I'm studying. So one thought at a time, and I had to choose with the help of the Holy Spirit to submit those thoughts to the obedience of Christ, which meant choosing, in my case, not to retract my faith or try to do that, which God had given me, but to willingly exercise my faith. And I've learned that if we desire to obey God with our thoughts, He is always ready to help us, and certainly He is able to help us in His mighty power. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10 are are desperately needed and and so encouraging because they remind us to keep our focus on the spiritual war we're fighting, using the supernatural weapons God has given us, which enable us to shatter arguments that question the truth and the power of the gospel, and to seize each wayward or tempting thought and in the power of God's Spirit, bring those thoughts into obedient submission to Christ. So important. So I want to just focus, just end with three things that I think we can draw from this passage that will help us in this battle. We all face different temptations, different struggles with our thoughts. But what can we learn from this passage that will help us fight this invisible war these spiritual battles we face daily. First, we must fight with God's truth. Plain and simple, we must fight this spiritual war with God's truth. Our worldview and our thoughts about all of life must be informed by God's perfect, inerrant word. Our thinking has to be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, His coming to earth in the Incarnation, his sinless life, his death that atoned for our sins, and his resurrection that won the victory over sin and death for everyone who repents and believes in him. This is foundational. It's essential truth that informs how we think about all of life. A powerful way and in my life, probably the most powerful way to grow in your knowledge of God's truth is to memorize Scripture. Certainly read it daily is, is critical. But as you're able... I highly recommend memorizing Scripture. Unexpected and sometimes unwelcome thoughts do seem to pop into our heads at, at, at seemingly random times, and we're, we don't always have the opportunity to look up a passage of Scripture. Maybe we're, we're right in the middle of some work, uh, 
you know, project or we're surrounded by people or, or whatever the case may be and it's, we don't have the ability to just look something up, although with our phones these days, sometimes you can. But uh, you can't always quickly look up and find what you're looking for. It, it, it's life-changing to meditate on God's Word as you memorize it and then literally have it hidden in your heart. You know, I think we're, we're all, most of us familiar with Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Something about having Scripture memorized so that you can bring it to mind at a critical moment when you need it to be reminded of God's, God's character, His redemptive plan, His will for you in Christ. All the things that God's word provides for us, His perfect word, is so powerful. So I strongly recommend uh, memorizing Scripture to help confront those thoughts as part of that spiritual war. Also, second, we must confront and conform every sinful thought. I know it maybe sounds obvious, but we've got to confront and conform every sinful thought and make it obedient to Christ. If you're struggling with a long-time habit or a pattern of sinful thoughts, this really probably sounds overwhelming. But here's the good thing. Here's the good news. You only have to deal with one thought at a time. And if you confront each thought, they will gradually come at you with less frequency. I, I promise you. James 4, 7 tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. When you resolve to take your thoughts captive, the first day, you might have to capture and conform a hundred 200 sinful thoughts, and it's going to seem overwhelming. But if you, if you choose and resolve to confront each one with God's help after maybe a week or two, maybe it's 50 a day, and then after a month, maybe it's 10 or 20, and after a year, you realize, I haven't struggled with that temptation to think that sinful thought for quite a while. It starts with just choosing to confront each one and just dealing with them one at a time. There's a great analogy for uh, capturing our thoughts that was shared with me. It's like, kind of like calf roping at a rodeo. This is a great, great way to picture this. The rider catches the calf by throwing, you know, a loop of his rope from a lariat around the calf's neck. He dismounts from his horse. He runs to the calf and quickly restrains it by kind of flipping it and tying three legs together in as short a time as possible, right? Timing is of the essence. This is how we need to capture our sinful thoughts, as decisively and quickly as possible. Temptation is always to let sinful and, and you know, make no mistake, appealing. There are plenty of sinful thoughts that are appealing, right? So the temptation is to take sinful and appealing thoughts and let them linger just a little bit indulge them for just a little while. They feel good. Sounds weird to say that, but there are thoughts, there are plenty of things we can think about that feel good to us. But the point where we are tempted to do this, to let them linger, to indulge them, is exactly when we need to subdue them before they can begin to cause harm. Right? So this is the, this is the calf roping analogy. As quickly as possible, subdue that thought. Conform, confront and conform it to, the, to, to obedience in Christ. And one final comment is that 
we, we need to, in a sense, treat each sinful thought as if your life depends on it. So back to the Trojan horse analogy. Like a Trojan horse, a thought that appeals to your flesh might feel like a gift, right? But if you allow it to lead you down a sinful path of thinking, it really is like releasing the enemy soldiers that are hidden inside the horse. And as James 1.15 says, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So don't let out, don't indulge that thought, or it can do great destruction. Finally, the, the, the last uh, suggestion is we, we've got to replace sinful thoughts with godly ones. It's not just a matter of, of trying to confront and conform those thoughts to obedience in Christ. We really need to be choosing to think about things that honor God. It says in, in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So it, this is fi one final real-world example of, of putting off sinful thoughts and replacing them with godly ones. For, for those who are married, so if you're tempted to lust after someone other than your spouse, you can take that thought captive, reject it, don't indulge it, and choose instead to dwell on the qualities that you love and appreciate about your spouse, thanking God for them and for all the ways he has blessed you through your spouse. Proverbs 5.18 tells men, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoicing in your wife or rejoicing in your husband is an active pursuit, and it requires mental effort. It's a choice. We may not be able to control all the thoughts that come into our heads, clearly. Sometimes they seem to come out of nowhere. But with the Holy Spirit's help, we can control whether we dwell on them or we replace them with thoughts that honor Jesus. We can win this, the invisible war against sinful thoughts if we fight with God's truth, we confront and conform every sinful thought, every sinful thought, and we replace sinful thoughts with God-honoring ones. So let's pray and ask God to help us please Him in this area. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is living and active, able to just uh, dig down deep into our, our motives, into our hearts, our thoughts, and reveal our true motives to us when we allow it to. I thank you that uh, your word is uh, breathed out by you and, and useful for instruction, correction, rebuking us when we need it, and training us in righteousness, God. And this is a passage that, that we need to allow to train us in righteousness, God, we need to keep our, the eyes of our heart on you. Jesus, fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we need to, to look not at the things that are seen and temporary, but the unseen things of your kingdom, where this invisible war is taking place. But we don't need to be afraid, because 
your word tells us that we, we don't have anything that it takes to fight this war. We're utterly weak, and thank you that Paul was so clear in, in even choosing to not try to be clever with the Corinthians, but to say, I purposely came to you without be, being as clever as, as I could have been because I wanted the power of the gospel, the message of the cross, the power that is from you, the salvation that comes from you alone, God. He wanted your power to be at work among the Corinthians. He didn't want them to be distracted by any human cleverness or skill of his. God, help us remember this, that really we don't have what it takes. We do not. Apart from you, we can do nothing, but we can do all things that you ask us to do, all things through Christ who lives in us by your Spirit, who strengthens us in your mighty power and gives us these spiritual weapons with which to fight this war and win the spiritual war. God, we pray that you would help us have victory for those of us who may be struggling in specific areas, God. Would you convict us of our sin and convince us of the power of your spirit and the power of your word to help us overcome those sinful thoughts one at a time. And God, for any here today who realize that they have not yet repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ alone to save them, would you draw them, would you open their hearts to the truth of the gospel and this power that is available to them if they're your child to fight these battles and win them and have this awesome wonderful hope of eternal life that we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.